Well, uh, hello everyone. You'll notice that there's a little outline there with the two guys running on it, so that may be helpful, I hope. I'll just get myself a little bit organised here in advance and then we'll be able to start. There we go. Open up the right page so things are okay. And I'll just uh, commence in prayer. Thank you. Just so we can uh, be able to concentrate in God's word. Uh, Father, we do give you thanks for the uh, great passages that we've been looking at in the last uh, two or so weeks. And uh, we thank you, our God, for them and for the message they have for us about Christian growth. And we just pray again that your Holy Spirit would be with us again, helping us to understand your word and seeing how it applies to our lives. Amen. Uh, Elizabeth and I went on a holiday about two years back. And uh, as it turned out, um, I had uh, quite severe pains in my hips. Uh, I had pains in my arm, arms. The pains in the hips had been there for a while and sort of ignored, to be honest. Uh, the pains in the arms were because of endless typing. Um, and it got progressively worse during what was just a four-day trip away. Um, and uh, my back was very close to spasming and locking up. Now, that used to be a very common event in my life. I used to get three major episodes a year where my back would lock up, uh, occasionally have to be carted off to hospital, uh, occasionally just have this massive needle stuck in my bum with Valium in it and so on. Um, And it would take usually about three to four days or five days to get over However, Voltaren came on the market and it was just the solution to everything. Uh, You'd take Voltaren, the back would settle down, you'd then be able to go on your walk and it'd be fine. Well, this wasn't the case in this particular instance. And as soon as I got back from the holiday, I went to the physio uh, and after about two months of work on arms and back, they were back to normal. But uh, on the very last visit, uh, the physio asked me, uh, do you want this problem solved? I said, yes. He said, well, you need to go to Pilates. Well, my version of Pilates, of course, was lots of sort of stretches to music and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, But, you know, I thought, well, can't hurt. And, And, of course, it was that, but much more, because a good 20 minutes Uh, of the end of it, in my case, was spent on bench presses and still is to this very day um, and also on leg presses. And guess what? I've had no trouble ever since. It's just important to see the difference that genuine, hard, disciplined exercise can make. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is what is true physically is true spiritually, that If we are to grow in Christ, we have to be spiritually disciplined. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul, in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, after having spelt out the example of the obedience of Christ all the way to the shame of the cross, um, and also the humility of Christ going all the way to the cross, has these words in verses 12 and 13. 
He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's an interesting phrase that he uses for the work out bit. In the Greek, that's where we get our word energy from. So we have to work out our salvation as if it totally depended upon us, Paul's saying. You work it until you are sweating with, with, uh, on your brow and your clothes are stinking because uh, of all the exercise you've been doing. You've been working that hard at it. And, yet, in that, and then in a great paradox, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So there we have the paradox. You are working out your salvation with extraordinary discipline and hard effort and in the end of it, it's all God's work anyway. He inspires the thoughts, he inspires the deeds. It's all his work of grace in our lives. So you have that enormous conflict between human responsibility and God's grace that inspires and empowers it all. And Paul cannot be bothered being a Plato and philosophising about determinism and uh, human responsibility. That's not his interest. Because in the end, the Bible is a book to be lived by. And we have to take seriously our human responsibility and we have to take with equal seriousness the overpowering work of God's grace in it all. And in our passage today, you'll see it's exactly the same. Paul in Philippians 3, 5 to 11, has set out himself as an example uh, as much as Christ in chapter 2. And then we will see in the passage that I'm going to be looking at, and I'm only looking at verses 12 through to 16, Paul again emphasises human responsibility very strongly and also God's grace very strongly. This series, and I'm wrapping it up tonight, has been titled Dying and Rising in Christ, The Secret to Spiritual Growth. And I do want to do a little bit of revision. Once again, I said to you, I was a high school teacher for 15 years, so revision is where we're at. And very simply, I'm just going to say, some points summing up the secret of spiritual growth, particularly in verses 9 and 10. And we saw that, first of all, in verse 9, you had to be on the right team. What do I mean by that? If you're not locked into Christ and in relationship with him, you're not going to grow spiritually. As Ephesians 2 says, we're dead in our sins without God and without hope in the world. And the secret of being in Christ is that we understand that the faithfulness of Christ to God is what puts us right with him. It's because of his obedience to God all the way to the cross on our behalf that righteousness is transferred from our bankrupt bank account that has experienced the global financial crisis where every stock we have had has been wiped away in God's judgment. And instead of that set of trash and rubbish that's of no use at all, lost stocks, God transfers to our credit account the perfection of Jesus. That is the bedrock of our growth. 
If we don't have that, we don't grow, ladies and gentlemen. We just have to understand that, brothers and sisters. Paul's second point in terms of spiritual growth is the importance of our aim. And he says that his aim is to know Christ. But it's not just getting a theology degree. It's not going to Moore College or SMBC or reading, reading the right theological authors. It is experiential. He knows Christ experientially. The third thing that Paul says, and here's the paradox, that we know him in the interplay of weakness and of his resurrection power. He knows the resurrection power of Jesus in the present. Paul knows this from the past. He has died and risen in Christ and is a new being, Romans 6. Verse 11 in chapter 2, he's already said we will rise in Christ. Verse 21 in this chapter, he talks about our resurrection body being like the body of Jesus. But there is a present knowledge also of the resurrection of Jesus. We rise daily in Jesus. We die daily in Jesus. And Paul is getting over the point that we experience God's power in weakness. Now, I'm not saying that God does not work powerfully in our lives without weakness. Sometimes God does go in your life and there's this enormous reversal of circumstances or experience great power and he just decides to do it that way. But normally, God works through weakness and through suffering and through hardship. And that's his preferred way. Why is that? Because when we are weak, to whom do we go? When we're being shamed, to whom do we go? When we're being mocked, to whom do we go? When we have no resources left, to whom do we go? (coughs) And the answer is we go to God. We trust in him at long last. We stop being self-sufficient and thinking we we can do it ourselves. And more importantly than that, in that experience, Paul says, we have the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Notice, they are his sufferings. Jesus owns owns us, and what we experience in terms of suffering are his suffering. And more than that, we enter into fellowship (coughs) with Jesus in it. That somehow in these sufferings that are so difficult and painful, we experience his comfort. We see his purpose. We see the end of it all. We see his hope. It's not hopeless. It's not without purpose. It's not without comfort. We experience the fellowship of his sufferings. And then the last thing he says is that in that process we become like Jesus in his death. What's meant by that? It means that just as Jesus on the cross said no to his own will, Father, your will be done. And just as he said yes to God's will and yes to other people on the cross, he died in our place. So in suffering, we learn to say no to ourselves Yes to God, yes to his plan, 
and yes to whatever that might involve with other people. So there's the, the summing up what Paul is saying about dying and rising in Christ, the secret to Christian growth. Now what he does, and I'm moving straight into our text, is that he starts to explain how this works out. And notice in verse 12a, he makes it quite plain to say that he has not yet arrived. Notice in the first part of that verse, not that I've already obtained this or have already reached my goal. So here's a paradox. As Christians, Christ has risen. He has sent his Holy Spirit into our lives. He has provided his word. He's provided the body of Christ so that we can grow. He's given us gifts so that others might grow. And the Holy Spirit day by day lives in us. Christ, the risen Lord of all, lives in us. And that's in the now. And yet the reality of our Christian lives is often the opposite, isn't it? It's hard yards. It's difficult. It's demanding. There seems to be a relentless temptation to move away from what God wants in our lives and we find it frustrating and we see that so often we fail and that we are losers and we're not living up to God what God expects yet alone what we even ourselves expect of ourselves on our best days how disappointing what we're experiencing is the not yet we've not yet arrived in the kingdom We've not yet obtained this. We still have to go the way of death to move into the kingdom of heaven. And we cannot say that we will reach perfection this side of heaven. There's a great conversation and uh, uh, all of you, I'm sure, get the little um, email that's sent around to you on Fridays uh, that comes out from the church and tells you a bit about the sermon and other uh, interesting bits and pieces. Very important. Um, And uh, in this one last Friday, I put the conversation between Count Zinzendorf and John Wesley on the web, so you can see it. You don't have to try and remember all this. And Zinzendorf was a count, a wealthy and powerful man who lived in the 18th century. He was one of that group called the Moravians. They were missionaries. They uh, came from Czechoslovakia. And... um, John Wesley admired them greatly. And the reason why he did is that on a boat trip, either from Georgia back to England or from England to Georgia, I forget which way it is, um, the boat in which Wesley was going was almost turned over by a gale. And the Moravians just sat there praising God and singing hymns to him. And, of course, they got there safely. And uh, uh, Wesley was absolutely wiped out by that, the, uh, the spirituality of these guys. And they had indeed been taught by John Huss, the great reformer of the 16th century. And here's how the conversation goes between Wesley and Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf says, I acknowledge no inherent perfection. Christ is the only perfection. Wesley says, I believe the spirit of Christ works Christian perfection in Christians. Zinzendorf says, by no means. All our perfection is in Christ. Faith in the blood of Christ is the only Christian perfection. The whole Christian perfection is imputed, not inherent. 
We are perfect in Christ. We are never perfect in ourselves. Wesley then says, is not then every believer holy? Zinzendorf says, certainly, but he's holy only in Christ, not in himself. Wesley says, but is not his heart and life holy? Zinzendorf says, undoubtedly. Wesley then says, is he not by consequence holy in himself? And Zinzendorf says, no, no, only in Christ. He is not holy in himself. He has no holiness at all in himself. And Wesley, I'm afraid, is wrong. Zinzendorf is right. As much as the Holy Spirit works within us powerfully, we will always fall short as Christians. And we come again and again and again in the face of failure back to the fact that we stand in Christ holy. God's no longer looking at us. He's looking at his perfect son. And that is why our sins in the past are dealt with. That is why our sins in the present are dealt with. That is why our future sins that we'll commit from this day onwards are dealt with. Because he looks at Christ. So there's the first point. We have not yet arrived. So what are we going to do? Oh, I've not arrived. Oh, gloom, doom, poor, pitiful me. That would be the Jim Harrison approach to the world. But Paul says the absolute opposite. And what he says is, press on. Notice what he says in verse 12b. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. There's a paradox there, isn't there? Press on because God has already grabbed you by the neck and he's pulling you towards him whether you like it or not. And Paul is there reminding himself of the fact that he had been captured by God at the peak of his persecution on the Damascus Road when God said, "Um, by the way, Paul, let me introduce myself to you. Um, I'm the person that you're persecuting. This is the risen Jesus speaking to Paul. And uh, by the way, I'm not a crucified criminal. I'm the risen Lord of all. And by the way, my crucifixion was for you. And now you are my own. Thank you very much. Game over. And it was. God has intervened and grabbed us all if we have put our trust in Christ and he is pulling us towards completion in him on the judgment day. But in spite of that, we still have the responsibility to press on. And in fact, Paul has this marvellous self-concept. Can I just refer you uh, to go back a book or two to 1 Corinthians 15? Paul has a terrific self-concept. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm here looking at uh, verses 8 to 10. There Paul says, But I'm the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Oh, he's sitting on the pity pot here, isn't he? Poor old Paul. 
But notice what he goes on and says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I can accept myself in Christ by the grace of God. And by his, and his grace to me was not without effect. Now I worked harder than all the apostles. So isn't that incredible? He knows his enormous depth of sin and yet by the grace of God he knows that he's been used more powerfully than all the other apostles. Very strong self-concept. And then, of course, he says, but all that not I, but the grace of God that was within me. So it's all grace. Press on. Work as hard as you can till the sweat is dripping off you in terms of working out your salvation because it's all grace and God will bring it to accomplishment. In verse 13a, just in case we haven't gotten the message, Paul says exactly the same thing again. It's good to repeat things. We're slow learners and um, Paul wants to hammer this home to the Philippians. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. So notice the humility of Paul here. Pretty well, apart from the church to the Colossians and apart from the church at Rome, but all the other churches that were in Greece and Asia Minor, at this time were because of Paul. He'd established them all. He could boast an extraordinary amount if he wanted to. And yet, he's not taken hold of it. He's not arrived. Here you see his great humility. But notice, there's the same message again. In verse 13b, notice what he says. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Forgetting what is behind, forgetting what's past. What has he forgotten? Well, he's forgotten all his accomplishments. He's told us, hasn't he? As we learnt last week, as a non-Christian. Verses 4 to 6. He's forgotten his role as a persecutor. We've seen that in the 1 Corinthians passage as well. By grace, I am what I am. I've been made new. I can dismiss even that, even though the memory might be raw still. And in verse 8, in uh, this particular uh, uh, passage here, he moves into the present tense. So he dismisses even his Christian accomplishments. (coughs) Now we might ask, why does Paul forget? And the answer is, is that he forgets in Christ. Because God has forgotten about our record of failure in Christ. And because he now experiences the joy of knowing Jesus. That record of failure, that record of guilt, has been replaced by the joy of knowing Jesus. So he forgets what is past. Ladies and gentlemen, we dwell on the past, don't we? You know that sin. No, I'm not talking about that sin. I'm talking about that sin. Yes, that one. That's what I'm talking about. You know that sin. 
that broken relationship that was never restored, which remains unforgiven, unhealed, war is the day as when you stuffed it all up. That word that you said that so deeply wounded that person, that inconsiderate remark, that deeply vengeful, vengeful swipe at a person who never deserved it, and even if they did, your response was over the top. That sinful habit that keeps reappearing, that temptation which, to be truly honest, you deeply like, you secretly desire, you crave it, and you give into it again and again. That sin that recurs and recurs in our memory, going to the past, coming up alive again in all its rawness, all of that has been forgotten in Christ, even if we cannot. God has a wonderful case of forgetfulness because he's not looking at you and me. He's looking at Christ. And Paul, therefore, strains on towards what, what is ahead. It's a wonderful image. It's the image of a running race. And as we know, in a running race, what you do is you look towards the end. And there's these wonderful statues um, that are from Paul's time and they have the runner sort of like this, and his hand is out like this. And you can see that the eye line of, this, of the athlete is following his hand, and it's moving straight towards the line, because that's where he's going. He's going towards Christ. He's not looking behind him to see where the competition is or if they're either side of him. He's concentrating on one thing alone, running towards Christ. So, once again, so we get the message in verse 14, Paul again reiterates what is being said. Notice what he says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So the prize is being found in Christ. Christ himself in the end. And again, it's a beautiful image. In the ancient world, there was a thing called the Periodos, and it was a circuit. And it was the international celebrity circuit of athletes, and they went from various sites to various sites, uh, and each city ran its games. So Corinth had its games, uh, Ephesus had its games, Athens had its games, Olympia had its games, and, and the athletes went from city to city. Pretty much like the Grand Slam and tennis, you know, where you do Roland Garros and you do the Australian Open, Wimbledon and so on. Exactly the same. And who funded these things? Rich people in each city. And they were called the Agonotheates. And because they pulled out of their toga lots of money to run these games... These guys were the ones who handed out all the prizes at the end. So there you have the wealthy dude who's paid all the money for the games, calling up all the athletes onto the podium, giving them their little uh, crown made out of olive leaves to the victor of each race, or, or a palm leaf, uh, a palm branch, as case may be. And Paul is saying, that's what 
is going to happen in the future. That God who is the president of the games, that one, that great benefactor, the infinitely powerful and the infinitely rich one, he will call us up onto the podium and he will award us too. But what's nice, it's not just one winner. It's not just the fastest. It's also the slowest. It's not the most lean person, but people like me who are a little bit overweight. It's not just the perfectly successful Christian. It's also the Christian who's blown it in the past quite substantially in their lives. They are all called up because they come up because God has called them and Christ has died for them and that's why they win. No reason other than that. So in light of this now, Paul starts to explain that since we've not arrived, since we are to press on, what does Christian maturity look like? So we see that in verse 15. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. Well, that's not very helpful at all, is it? He just presumes that we know what maturity is. I'm going to say this slowly. I'm going to give you a second or so to think about it. How would you define what a mature Christian is? Say it again. How would you define what a mature Christian is? Here's my answer. Answer number one. The mature Christian is the Christian who realises that he or she is not mature. That's the first characteristic of the mature Christian. The second characteristic of the mature Christian is this. They realise that they're not mature, but in spite of that, they press on. So that's the second part of being a mature Christian. And the third part is this. (coughs) The mature Christian realises that he or she is to be like Christ. That's what Christian maturity is all about. It's that simple and that complex. The second part of the verse is really interesting. Notice what Paul says. He says, and if on some point you think differently, that God will also make clear to you. You know, there's all kinds of things that Christians think differently about. I remember um, in a previous church I was, it wasn't an Anglican church, um, uh, there was a letter sent to the session about two session members, of which I was one. And the complaint was that um, at communion, these two session members, of which I was one, did not wear ties when we were being disrespectful to God. 
Now, it was a lovely Christian woman who raised the point, and we handled it very well, I think. But it's really not the main game of being a Christian. See, we can actually disagree on things that are inconsequential and not make it a major issue. On minor issues of doctrine, baptism, is the kid dunked when they're, you know, one year old? Or does it happen when you're 16? Actually, not a critical issue in the end. We can learn to disagree graciously. And that's part of Christian maturity. Let's not minor on the minors. Let's just let God make things clear to us. Let the Holy Spirit continue to pour out his revelation through God's word. Let us debate these things, but not become issues of division. That is not Christian maturity when churches endlessly divide and bicker and church members bicker amongst themselves and minutiae. That's not godliness. That's just foolishness. Last verse, and then I'm going to give us some applications. The path of progress, Paul says, towards Christian maturity is obedience. Should not surprise us. Obedience was what characterised the life of Jesus. Notice what Paul says. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Some of us know a lot about the Bible. Some of us know very little. Some of us have been Christians all our lives. Some of us have probably perhaps even been Christians for two or three weeks. It doesn't matter, Paul says, where you are, how much knowledge you have, how little knowledge you have, how much experience you've had, how little experience you've had. All that matters is the amount of knowledge or the amount of experience that you have is that you live up to it and start to live it out. And then God will bless you with more and you'll grow. All right. Now we come to a series of applications. You see these on the back of your sheets. And the first one is summing up um, uh, what I've said is that passengers wait for their destination. I'd have to say, and I think you'd agree with me, it would be very odd if I was going to Wynyard Station. If I went to North Strathfield Station, got on, and then got off at Petersham, thinking that I'd arrived at Wynyard Station. No, I haven't arrived at Wynyard Station I've missed it. In fact, I haven't even reached it. I got off at Petersham. And so it is with a Christian life. We cannot just decide to bail out somewhere on the journey. We have to press on and persevere towards the end. <coughs> Secondly, I'm not <coughs> spending a great deal of time on this topic, of course, it was, a lot of time was spent on it in uh, the first talk. But you might remember I said I'm going to be writing my next book on humility and how I achieved it, and then the subsequent book on, would be on humility and how I blew it. And I made the point that humility was 
not a virtue that was liked in the ancient world. In fact, it was despised. It was the virtue of slaves because it was attached to the slave digging up and being involved with the soil. And in fact, the one book that was written on humility in the ancient world, listen to the title, was by the title was by the author called Plutarch. And this is the title. How to praise oneself inoffensively. See what he's saying? It's okay to praise yourself as long as you do it inoffensively. Christians say such boasting, whether it's offensive or inoffensive, is wrong. The ancient world didn't understand humility. We now do because of the gospel. Forget God has. The most forgetful person I know is a guy called Shorty Sutton. He was a student of mine at Wesley Institute where I taught theology for longer than I remember. He was very short, about that height. He had tats all over him, and I mean all over him. He had a nose, rings and earrings, and he was an intimidating guy. When he was 12, he was ready into the alcohol and the drugs. By 14, he was a rebel biker. And by 19, the way he'd establish his turf was to go up to the biggest and ugliest biker you could find out and punch the living daylights out of them. And he became a rebel biker. And he said to me that six out of seven days he could not remember a thing. Not a thing. He was spaced out in drugs and alcohol. He got to know Chopper Reed very well. You'd be well aware of his name. And became the drug man, the drug deliverer of preference of Chopper Reed and indeed at one stage was offered $3,000 to kill someone for Chopper Reed. For some reason Shorty didn't take it up. He decided to do one last job and he was so spaced out that he got into the house, collapsed and the police found him there a few hours later. Totally blotto. He was converted in prison, sold his Harley, went to Bible college, got an MA in theology. It's incredible to see this massively violent person, gregarious, gentle, humorous, delightful man, unrecognisable. And what was his secret? He had learned to forget He had learned that all of that stuff he'd done had been forgotten by God and he could forget it and now grow into a totally different person. Second last application, no pain, no gain. We've all heard of Stephen Bradbury, haven't we? The Australian gold medal ice skating champion. He was a short track speed skater, 
did the 1,000 metre event. And we know that famous scene in his uh, 2002 Olympic race where all his opponents were caught up on the last corner. There's this massive pile, pile up and he just skates all around them and gets the, um, gets the, the gold medal. It was a fluke, really, I guess. Oh, no, it wasn't. No fluke at all. You have to understand this. Anything else but a fluke. This was his fourth Olympic, uh, Olympic competition. So he'd managed to get that to that level four times now. And this wasn't his first medal, actually. In 1994, he'd won a bronze Olympic medal as part of the short track relay team. We don't hear about this. So he's already at the top of his game a long time ago. And what you see in him is one who had put in endless training, keeping on your feet, avoiding any crashes, divert and skate past any unexpected events in front of you, years and years and years of training came to fruition. Not a fluke. Planned for, hard yards. It put in all the pain and got the gain. And so it is with us. Lastly, lift your eyes. There's a lovely walk I do in the, in the mornings uh, uh, on an irregular, regular basis, and that is to walk through Elizabeth Park. I walk up the incline. It's usually around about 6.30 uh, with a little black dog. And that's when I do my pathetic attempts at prayer uh, that stumble and I forget and I say the Lord's Prayer and I think of other things and then I get back to the Lord's Prayer and I throw in a few more things and, uh, and so it just sort of bumbles along uh, in the most uh, disappointing way, I'm sure, at one level. But eventually I do come to the top of the rise and I look left down Gibbs Street and you see this massive stream of cars except I can't see them because the sun at that time has just come up and it is blinding. You can't see anything. You just look and it is blinding. You can't see where the road ends. You can't see where the traffic actually exits. It's just blinding. And I like that metaphor. I like the fact that I've walked through the park in its darkness stumbling to try and say my prayers, not achieving at all particularly well. And at the end of it all is this blinding light, heaven awaiting us. Brothers and sisters, what we have to do is to lift our eyes and look to where we're going. That is another secret of Christian growth. Amen.